Good morning. I'm Gracie Skaggs. I'm a senior at Central Hardin, and I'm part of the youth here. And today I'm going to be reading to you from Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you, la- you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will treasure, have treasure, treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for what your word says about eternal life. Be with Pastor Jacob as he gives the sermon this morning, and open our hearts and minds as you speak to us through him. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Gracie, for reading our passage today. I have to tell you, I am incredibly proud of our students. Uh, Specifically, I am proud of their eagerness to serve and to step up in the church When they are asked, it is truly a blessing to be student pastor here at Valley Creek Baptist Church. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, as Gracie just read for us. That's our passage for today where we will be uh, focusing our time. The other day I was having a a conversation with a student, and uh, as I began this conversation, I was kind of, uh, it was a moment uh, where I was struck with Uh, kind of how often and how similar conversations that we have feel. Uh, You guys have probably had some of these conversations already this morning, right? Where you walk in and there's kind of the the perfunctory, hey, how are you doing today? And most of us probably got the very common, I'm good, right? That phrase, I'm good, is used in a lot of different ways, right? Right? It can be used in the, I don't really know how to answer that question. I'm just kind of here. I'm good. Uh, That can be used in the, I really don't want to answer that question because there's stuff going on I don't want to talk to you about. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. That can be used. Maybe some of you have used it this way in a moment where you realize that your anger has gotten the best of you, right? And somebody walks up and they're like, how you doing? you're like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And you know you have to back yourself off from a situation. Or, and I'm sure this is probably only true of me, it is a phrase that is used when you are most definitely not good. Instead of making one extra trip from the trunk of the car to the kitchen counter, you look at the last 23 bags that are there and you say, I can do this. And you pick up all 23 bags and somehow all 23 bags just happen to be canned goods. And you pick it up and then your spouse looks at you and she gives you the look that says, you're not good. And you say, I'm good. And you're not. 
How do we use this phrase, I'm good, and how often do we actually mean it? Today we're going to look at a guy that I think probably used often the phrase, I'm good, and and I would say probably sincerely meant it. He thought he was being honest, but I think as we look at the passage, as we see what is happening here, we're going to find out that there's a whole lot more of us in him than most of us are ready to admit. We would say I'm good, but we're really not. So as we dive in today, let's look at the beginning as Gracie read for us in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good No one is good except God alone. And one of the things that I love about this passage as we get started is is what I'll call it the kind of the palpable sincerity that is here. Uh, There's a lot of passages in scripture where we see people kind of approach the situation and there's not a real sincerity to what they're doing. We can think about Jesus and we can look at how often somebody approached Jesus with less than altruistic motives. We can think of people like the scribes or the Pharisees or Sadducees or the, uh, the Roman rulers of the day who would come to Jesus and they would seek to trap him or, or get him to say something that matched what they wanted. They knew what they wanted to get out of things and it wasn't what was the appearance of it. But in this passage, I love that just about everybody we see or really everyone we see in this passage There is a sincerity to where they are at. They have come to Jesus or they are listening to Jesus because they understand that to be the place where they can get answers to the difficult questions that they have. They have come to a place where they're like, I know what I need and this is the place where I'm going to find it. So as we walk through this passage, I want to do so by looking at a few different people that we find here. A few of the people that stand out in this, obviously, the first person we would look at is the person whom your Bible probably has this passage listed under, the rich young ruler. And I want to I talk about him. I, I can't help, and, and I know that he is a tragic figure here in the Gospels, but I can't help but like the guy because of his sincerity. So what do we know about this guy? Right? Well, we know a couple of things, uh, namely that he is first rich, that he is second young, and that he is third a ruler, Right? That he is rich, he is wealthy, uh, not really sure how. Maybe he has family wealth, maybe he earned his wealth, maybe he had a startup internet business and it just took off, right? We, we don't know how he got his money, but we know that he is wealthy. Uh, we know uh, that he is young, so he got his wealth at an early age. He is not old by the standards uh, of this day, and that he is a ruler, so he's a person that has some kind of authority. He is not a person that has just made his way in life and now he's come here. He is somebody that has influence. He is somebody that has some power. And those are all surface level things. We get that just from reading the title of the passage, but I think there's some other things we can see. I think we can understand that this man knows that there is something different about Jesus. See, he is a rich young ruler. He would certainly have an end to all of the influential crowds, including the teachers of the law. Yet, for some reason, he walks through this crowd that we know, if we read in chapter 17, has those people in it, and he walks right past them to find Jesus. 
He knows that there is something different about him, and he knows that he can find the answers to his questions by going to Christ. I think we can say that he very sincerely believes himself to be devout. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think he's lying when in a few moments Jesus gives him this list of things to do, and he says, I've done all of that. I think he sincerely believes to the best of his ability he has done that. I think he, is, he, he thinks himself or, or feels he is devout, but we also know that he is searching. He is found in all of his money and all of his power and all of his devoutness that there is still something missing. There is still something he needs to go after. There is something deeper in this life that he doesn't have and he wants to find it. And what we're going to find out, I think, finally and this is something that I don't think he knows about himself, is that the rich young ruler is unaware of how committed to the stuff of this world he really is. He seeks after something that he is unwilling to go for because he is committed to the stuff of the world. He doesn't know that. He needs to be shown that. So he walks up to Christ. He makes his way through the crowd. He's seen all of these things happening. Yep. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, second person we're going to see here is the main point. It is the focus of all of scripture. It is Jesus Christ. He knows, Jesus knows that he can really help this man. But if he is going to help him, if this man is going to hear anything that Jesus is about to say, that this man needs some real clarity. This man needs a deeper understanding of the reality of the world that we live in. He needs to understand what his motivations in this life really are, and he needs to know something very specific. And so there's two things I think Jesus wants to make sure that this rich young ruler is very clear on. The first of those things that he wants him to know is that there is, in fact, something very different about Jesus. He wants this man to be very clear on who Christ is. So in a way that Jesus so excellently does, he looks at the man and he says... In response to his question, here's another question. I love that Jesus does this, right? Like, hey, I have a question, and you're like, nope, here's a question, right? And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? He wants the man to stop and think. He knows that the man needs to understand who Jesus is before he can go any further into this conversation. So he says, why do you call me good? Now, notice that Jesus didn't deny his goodness. Jesus didn't say, hold on here, that's, you know, I think you're going in a direction you shouldn't be going. No, Jesus is in this moment using his rhetorical fashion that he does so well. He is saying, you're right, but why are you right? I am good, but why can you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus is wanting everybody listening to connect some dots, some dots that we are probably seeing if he is indeed good, and Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm good, and if God is the only one that is good, and if God is the only one that brings goodness into the world, then what are we saying? Jesus is saying, I am God. 
I am God. He is not denying his goodness. He is saying goodness only comes from one place, and that is me. As we live in a world that is lost and confused when it comes to the identity of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that has approached who Jesus is from a whole lot of different angles and a whole lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. The world is truly lost on Christ. Other religions will point to Christ and say, oh, that's a good prophet. Oh, that's an angel. Or, oh, that is a higher deity, but not the high. They say all sorts of stuff that is confusing and loses people. A secular world around us tells us at best Jesus was a good teacher. At worst, he is a tall tale, a figment of your imagination. But Jesus stands before this man and he says, I'm none of those things. I'm God. I am the creator of the world. I am the one who spoke everything you see into existence and I am good. I'm good. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus wants this man to know that there is something true in this world and it is me and I am God and I am good and I love you. I care for you. He needed to be very clear. You and I need to be very clear on who this Jesus we worship is. That he is God and he is Lord. So the man needed to know that. He needed to be very clear on that. But there was a second thing he needed to be very clear on. And this is the thing that Jesus moves to next, and that is that he needs to know exactly what is expected of those people who would attain to eternal life. Because that's what this man is seeking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get heaven? And he said, okay, if you want to know what it's going to take for you to attain to eternal life, here is the deal. Verse 20 says, know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Our students on Sunday nights, we've been walking through the Ten Commandments. We started on Sunday mornings in Exodus a while ago, and we looked at chapter 20, and then we started this semester looking at the Ten Commandments and uh, examining what they mean and how they're relevant for us today in our, in our small groups on Sunday night. And, and I would hope that those who had been here would have had just kind of a moment of, hold on a second, as we look at Jesus say, you know the commandments, this is a very clear pointing backwards to the Ten Commandments, and Jesus starts not with number one. Jesus skips the first four commandments altogether. He moves past those. And we've talked about on Sunday night the idea that the first four commandments 
deal with man's relationship with God? What do we think about God? Who is God and, and how do we worship him? How do we make sure our relationship with him is right? Now, Jesus skips those first four, and we've kind of talked about the fact that that's the starting point. So we ask the question, why would Jesus skip point A? Here's, here's the deep and, and for me this week, awe-inspiring truth of why he would do that. He knows this man. He knows this man. Yo, we, need to, we need to stop here and think about that for a second. Jesus knows us. Not, not in a way that you or I might know our lawn, right? That's, we have this idea that God is so omniscient and he's out there and he just knows everything, right? And I can look out of my yard and I go, well, there's some crabgrass out there and there's some Bermuda over there and there's some dandelions. I got too many of those, and, right? We can know our yard. Jesus doesn't know us like that. Jesus knows us like a parent knows a child better than they know themselves the deepness of their personality and the things that they long for and what makes them happy and sad and what motivates them, right? Any, anybody in here who has ever had a toddler knows what this is, right? Like, I can see it in my three-year-old, right? I know what he's gonna do before he does it. As he's sitting across the room and he looks down at that little piece of plastic in his hand and he doesn't know it yet, but his brain is about to say, launch it. Right, Just chuck it at the TV. See what happens. And he doesn't know it yet, but I do. And so what do I do? Don't eh. you do that. Oh, I wasn't going to do nothing. Right? Y'all, Jesus knows you. Not because he has to. Not because it's just part of the ethereal nature of God, but because he loves you. He wants to know you. He cares for you. You know, we need to understand that in this moment, as Jesus is speaking to this guy, this is not just some flippant moment of teaching. This is not just some moment where Jesus is going to cast condemnation on somebody so that somebody else can get it. Jesus loves this man, and he wants nothing but the best for him. And so he is unwilling to do anything but share the deep truths of who he is and what this world is really like. And so he tells him what is expected of somebody who would attain to eternal life. Perfection. Perfect obedience is the requirement. That's why he started in the second part. So the man could think he's good. And then Jesus can flip the script and say, okay, one thing. Okay. I mean, I, I always kind of imagine Jesus having a little bit more playful tone than we sometimes read in scripture. This guy, oh, I've done all of that, man. Since I was a teenager, I've been doing it. I was at all the Bible studies. I went to all the camps. I made it all happen. Man, I was great. And then Jesus says, okay, cool. Just do one more thing. Then. If you could just do this for me. Sell everything that you have. Give all the money away. And then in that poverty, come walk with me. So just a little thing. Nothing big. Just give it all away. This is a hard, hard truth to hear. And it's a hard truth to hear because we see what happens with this guy when he is confronted with what it takes. 
I don't, there's no doubt in my mind that this man went immediately to the fact that he knew I'm, I, I'm not good. I can't, I can't do that. When he heard these things, verse 23, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He thought he was good and then he realized the stuff that he was carrying, those 23 bags of groceries, they were too important for him to lay down. Y'all, we're holding on to too much. There are too many things that we are holding on to and we try to juggle in this life and we just, we just assume that because I've gotten so good at holding so many things, I could just throw something else on top of it and I'm good. We've gotten so good at it, we just assume that that's how life is supposed to be. That God can just be another part of our life and I'll just keep juggling it and y'all, it is wearing us out it is burning us down, and it is the exact opposite of the place that Christ tells us we have to start. He skipped the starting point because he wanted the man to understand, you don't start by putting more on. You start by laying it all down. You lay everything down at the foot of the cross. You say, God, I can't. I can't hold on to it anymore. All that worry and fear and doubt that leads me to a place of anxiety that tells me that I have to make sure that I'm going to be the guy that gets this all done, we got to lay it down. All of that stuff that's so important to us, that money and possession and that fame and that influence that we have, we got to lay it all down. Because none of it can exist in the same place where Christ is in our heart. Jesus says something very, very hard for this man to hear, that if you want me, everything else has to go. And this sounds harsh, and it sounds hard because it is, but I, I want us to understand this is not a moment in the teaching of Jesus where he was making something happen. This is a regular part of Jesus' conversation with people. You know, we see him often say something so hard that people just go, I can't do it, and they walk away. Luke 14 what does Jesus say, hey, if you're not going to love me so much that you'd be willing to walk away from mother and father and wife and kids and everything, then you're not following me. I don't think that there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter is going, wait a second, I've done this here in a few minutes. They know that this is the regular teaching of Jesus, that we have to lay everything down before him. And this man loved his stuff so much. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. So he went away sad. I can't. I can't let this thing go. He loved his money. He loved his status. He loved everything that it brought. I'm sure he loved the people looked at him. The people thought he was the exemplar to follow. And, and I got to tell you, it made Jesus sad. We read, if we read this story in Mark, this, this same story in Mark, Mark gives us a little bit more detail in some places. And Mark looks uh, at this moment, he, he reminds us that this moment, the man wasn't just sad, Jesus was sad. And it said that Jesus became sad when he saw how sad this man was as he walked away. And so we, we shouldn't read these next comments as condemnation. 
We shouldn't read what Jesus is about to say as a wagging of his finger at this man. And it says in verse 24, when Jesus had saw him become sad, verse 24 says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, Jesus being sad himself said, how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus lamenting the position of this man's heart. And and make no mistake, that's what this is about. This is a a moment where it's not about the man's money. It's not about how much wealth he has. It's about the position of his heart. But let me give a warning. If me saying that causes your heart to kind of go, okay, good, then your money might be an issue. Jesus doesn't shy away from saying that. I mean, he says it's hard for those who have wealth. Why? Not because of the money, but because their dependence is not on him. They think they're good because of all that they have. And Jesus is looking at this man and he's saying, you're not good. You're not there. We are a people created to worship. God designed us for that. He made us to be a people who would worship him. But if we don't daily, intentionally remind ourselves that God sits on the throne of our heart, then we are prone to allow other stuff to fill that spot. Lesser things become more important and of higher priority than they ought to be. And we start to walk a different path. This is a hard truth, and it grieves Jesus to see this. It grieves him to see this man walk away. Because he knows that what he is doing is choosing the lesser stuff of this world than choosing the best stuff of Christ. And it's hard to hear. And that brings us to our third group. Jesus has given this moment of clarity. He's reminded this young man that it starts with me. I am God. And you need to be very clear about what is expected. And the expectation is perfect obedience in me. And the man is sad. Well, man, I, I can't. How can I do that? There are things getting in the way. I love my money too much to allow God to be God alone in my life. And the disciples, man, they are lost. How difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, they say. Or Jesus says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That sounds like an impossible task. And so they ask the question. Those who heard it said, who can be saved? And this is, this is the thought of the day, right? Okay, Jesus, let, let, me, let me just make sure I'm clear on this. That guy has been obeying the law the best he can since he was little, since he was a youth. That guy has clearly been blessed by God with, with money and with power and influence, and he's a ruler, and he's been doing this. He's the exemplar. He's the guy that we've always been pointing at and say, do it like him. And if he can't be saved, what hope do I have? What hope is there for me, Jesus? Oh, man, I love this. What he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is where he wanted the rich young ruler to get. This is what he wanted him to see. You can't do it. You can't get there. Apart from me, apart from life, in me, you don't stand a chance. 
You can't live good enough. You can't be kind enough. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't obey enough. When we try to make our life about all the good things that we do, even the things to follow God, and we start to say, look at all of my stuff. Look at my checklist. I've got almost everything marked. We start to live a life where we say, I'm good. It's another bag in our hand. Another bag that we can carry. Look, look, I've done it. I've grabbed something else. I've picked something else up. And Jesus says, the more you add, the further away from me you really are. It starts by putting it all down. By letting go of it and holding on to Christ. Holding on to him and him alone. And allowing him to carry it. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a difficult task, but because there's stuff that we love and that we care about and that is important to us. And it's hard to walk away from it. Here's, here's the reality. There's not a person in this room, not you, not me, not anybody, that under their own power, under their own will, has the ability to attain to eternal life. We can't get there. We are, all of us, not good. But there is also not a person in this room who has not been given the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The offer to lay everything down and take up something better. And that's the beauty of this passage. That's what I love about this passage. Is because there is only one person who walks away sad. And it's the rich young ruler. The man who by the world standards has everything and he walks away sad because he is unwilling to lay everything down for something better. So he walks away sad. The disciples hear the wonderful, wonderful encouragement from Christ. Peter, I, I've done that, right? I mean, this is, this is, you know, pure Peter here. See, we've left our homes. We followed you. Have we done this? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And they walk away with the encouragement of Christ. You've done this. You've laid it down and I'm going to give you something better. Now that's clearly, clearly from the context of scripture, that, that's not material possessions, Right? The disciples were not happy, healthy, wealthy people. <laughs> they followed Christ to the cross and after. They taught the world who he was to their own demise. They died, some of them very terrible deaths, proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they would do it all again a thousand times. Because they know that a life of following Christ is better than a life full of anything this world can offer. There is nothing that isn't worth laying down to pick up a life with Christ. And that's the beauty of this passage. When we lay it down, he gives us something that we cannot imagine how good it is. Because he is good. Because God is good. So we're left with the question, 
What are we holding on to today? What, what in our life has become so important that we're worried about laying it down at the feet of Jesus because he might take it away from us? He might not let us have it anymore. It might be stuff. It might be possessions. It might be fame. It might be influence. It might be authority. Who knows? But there is something that we all have a tendency to look to. And there might be something that you're saying, I'm not sure if I lay this down, he'll give it back to me. And like the rich young ruler, you might be saying, I don't know if I can do that. So how do we, how do we get to a point where we can say, I'm ready to lay this down? This doubt, this worry, this fear, this anxiety, this grief, this, uh, this worldly stuff. How do I do that? How do I lay that down in search of a better life, eternal life with Christ? It starts with a simple confession. God, I'm not good. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not good with the stuff that I have, and I want something better. I want you. Are we ready to lay down what we have for something that God has for us that is so much better? Will you pray with me? Father, you are good. And your love and your mercy endures forever. God, you look down. You want what is best for us. You see us. We're not good. And that is exactly why you sent Christ to us. That's exactly why you came into this world. You walked with us. Because you know we're not good and we need something better. God, we, we know and we see the reality of this world that you call us to something higher and deeper than just the stuff of the world and the things around us. And you call us to a life lived with you, with God. And the stuff of this world will never, ever satisfy that longing, God. But we get so trapped by it that even though we know the truth, we can't get beyond our love of this world. God, I pray that as we have seen this, this moment in time where Jesus grieves over one who would choose the stuff of the world instead of the stuff of God, God that we would take the warning to our own heart. God, that we would see that just as you called him to a deeper life with you. You are calling us to a deeper life with you, God. And I know that in a room with this many people that there are those who are struggling deeply with a love of the stuff of the world or, or they're struggling with holding on to a, a fear or an anxiety. God, they're, they're holding on to, to something that God, they know makes them happy and so they're afraid that you might take it. We get so lost in that that we forget your goodness and we forget that you have something better for us. So God, I pray for each of us. Wherever we are at in our walk, we're not a believer, we're not walking with you or we've been doing it for 40 years. 
that we would see what it takes to more and more lay it down at your feet. And I pray that as we walk through this moment, God, you would reveal to our hearts the things that we need to get right with you. And that we would lay those down at your feet and seek after your son. God, that you would move and stir in our hearts this morning. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you're wondering, you're, you're there and you're saying, I know that I've held on too long to my stuff. I've held on too long to my doubts and my fears and my angers. But I'm ready to be done with it. I'm ready to lay it down. Or maybe you're saying for the first time, I know that there is sin in my life and I'm ready to be done with it and walk into a relationship with Christ. How do I do that? Oh man, it's so easy. Jesus' love for you is so great that he lays it out very, very simply. Confess to him what you've been holding on to. Tell him you've been holding on to it too long and you don't want to hold on to it anymore, that you are confessing that sin, saying, God, I'm done with this. And I'm ready to chase you and you alone. Repent of that and turn away from it. And then believe that Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient payment for your sins and that belief is good enough to bring to you forgiveness when you ask that it is yours. Confess, repent, believe, and then commit your life to Christ and say, God, I'm yours and yours alone. The stuff of the world is secondary. You give it to me, and then I'm going to praise you for it. You take it away, then you didn't think I needed it anyway. Bless your name. And say, I'm going to chase after you and you alone. Father, may that be our prayer this morning that we would be committed to following you and you alone this morning. That we would lay all things down at your feet.